open in front of you. We'll be referring to that uh, as we go through. Um, but I just wanted to uh, begin by telling you about the, the most popular show of the summer, Like It or Loathe It, uh, the show that everybody was talking about uh, was Love Island. <laughs> Love Island. Um, it was billed as the, the 21st century blind date. But as one columnist I read uh, this week, uh, she described it more accurately as uh, having more in common with the Hunger Games than actually with Blind Date as contestants. Impossibly beautiful contestants uh, were brought along to the Spanish villa. Uh, they had to, they had, the game, name of the game was to find true love, a competition to find true love, and also win £50,000, so motives might have been a little bit mixed along the way, hard to be sure. Um, but they had to do all these, they were invited to do all these suggestive games to win prizes. They were encouraged to share beds at night. Uh, certainly they were encouraged to engage in, let's call it, nocturnal activities. Um, uh, all for the amusement of the public, all captured by the hundreds of hidden cameras all around uh, the Spanish villa. Uh, but as that show unfolded over the number of weeks that that reality show went on, it actually revealed what are lots of the values and assumptions in our culture today about sex and relationships. I think it reveals at least three assumptions that we've got in our culture. Number one, that casual sex is a normal and acceptable part of dating and relationships. It reveals number two, that you can only really be sure you'll find that special someone if you're beautiful, externally beautiful. And I think thirdly, it, it, it leaves us with the impression, the very strong impression, that if you're to find that someone, that special someone, uh, being unfaithful is an inevitable step in finding them. Okay? Um, and in that light, uh, I think what we see that in that show, despite all the beautiful bodies, despite the luxurious house, despite the exotic location, there's something deeply ugly about Love Island. I'm not the only one to think that. Um, I came across this quote uh, by um, Megan Cornwell. Now, Megan Cornwell is the deputy editor of Premier Christianity magazine, and it's uh, in an article there that I read this. She wrote, When I watched Adam Collard break Rosie Williams' heart in episode 14, after she had given herself to him emotionally and sexually, I couldn't help but wonder what Rosie's parents must be feeling what it was like seeing the child they had loved, invested in, cared for, and watched grow into a woman dismissed and scorned. The Bible tells us that God is a father much better than even the kindest earthly father. So if Rosie's dad was distressed, seeing his daughter used and rejected, how much more does God's heart break for those made in his image crying in anguish? I think what Love Island shows us is the dark side of our hookup culture that's very popular today. And many people, uh, not just Rosie, who have been searching to find that someone, uh, have been left discovering to their cost 
that sexual intimacy without fidelity and faithfulness can often lead to shattered self-esteem and heartbreak. Many are discovering that casual sex also brings with it the shame and the pain of struggling with uh, sexually transmitted diseases uh, or unwanted and unplanned pregnancy. There is a dark side to the hookup culture. Um, Unfortunately, the problem is uh, there's no area of life where I think traditional Christian thinking is more out of step with the culture around us than in this area. And part of that's our own fault, I think, if I'm honest. Uh, We all too quickly are happy to talk about what we disagree with, uh, what we think is wrong, uh, and there's plenty to criticize. Uh, We tend to focus on what we think is immoral in the lives of other people. Uh, And we've tended to focus uh, on those things. But as a writer I was just reading this week, uh, urged what we need to do, where we need to start if we're to speak out to our culture is we need to tell a better story. Not focus on the negatives, but show the positive view of what God has wisely designed for sex and relationships and how it can cause human flourishing. Um... And that's what I want to try to do uh, tonight. And so if you just glance down to chapter 2, verse 18, uh, look where this chapter starts. It starts by saying, and this is where this beautiful story, this better story, I think, begins right here, where we read, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone, and I will make a helper suitable for him. Six times in chapter 1 we're told that what God sees, what he's made, is good, is good. Again and again you read that every day of the six creative days you read God's assessment is that it's good. And that climaxes in chapter 1 verse 31 where we're told that God saw all that he had made and it was very good. Everything that God has made is wonderfully good. But this is the first time we read that something is not good. Uh, in the Bible. And the reason for that is that humanity, human beings, are not built for solitude. We are built for relationship. Now, we looked at that a couple of weeks ago, if you were here, when we looked at what it means to be human. We're made in the image of God, uh, hinted at in Genesis 1 and 2, but then made clear, clearer at least, in the New Testament, is that God himself is eternally Uh, has eternally existed in a mutually loving relationships as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so if we're made in the image of God, then it makes, we should expect human beings to long for relationships, to be like God. And what we have here is that God begins to solve that problem. I will make a suitable helper for him. Uh, Again, just need to clarify, um, Girls, please hear me. When you hear this word helper, I will make a helper for him. Do not think Santa's little helper, okay? Do not think that the woman is somehow inferior 
to the man. That is not what this Hebrew word means. In fact, this Hebrew word that's translated helper here most commonly is used in the Bible, especially in the Psalms, to describe God, the helper of Israel. He is not inferior to Israel. Uh, No, he's just drawing alongside to help them in their need. This woman is to be a partner for the man in the role that he has to, to work and develop, care and cultivate the world. She is his helper, his partner in this. And together they form the very first lifelong committed relationship where romance and sex, where self-sacrificial love and deep friendship can flourish. And we call that relationship marriage. And so we will have, at the very beginning, something very beautiful here. But, and that's the relationship that we're going to focus on tonight. But before we do, before we do, I need to alert you to a danger in reading chapter 2. Uh, there's a big danger if you read chapter 2 on its own, that you'll be left with the impression and a picture of this couple, isolated couple, staring lovingly into one another's eyes, probably with a couple of animal pets jumping around, uh, that they've got everything they need and that this is the, the, most, the most beautiful ultimate relationship that we can ever aspire to. We need to read chapter 2 in the context of chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. This couple are um, the first, the start of, the first building block of community. And so I want you to see, just before we dive into the details, I want you to see that God's solution to human solitude uh, and need for companionship is not actually marriage. It is community. It's community. You see, the danger is if we read chapter 2 on its own and we are single, we will be left with the impression that the only relationship that will ever be truly meaningful and significant in my life is, is a marriage one, and I don't have that at the moment. So my life is being wasted now. That's not true. That's not true. In the same way, if you are married and thinking that all your relational needs can be met in your spouse, that is to put a pressure on your marriage that it was never designed to bear. Marriage is a key building block of society and community, but there's a whole network of relationships that we need around that. Friends of both sexes, family, colleagues in various ways. The solution is not marriage to human solitude. The solution is community. But nevertheless, a key building block is marriage, and so I want to just focus on that Uh, for the rest of our time. Uh, I want to focus on this key core relationship. I want to say three things very quickly, or as quickly as I can. Uh, Number one, God is for sex. God is for sex. Number two, sex is for marriage. Number three, marriage is for life. 
Okay, those sound simple, but when you start pressing into each one of those, they get more complicated. But the first thing I want to point out is God is for sex. I came across a teacher from the Middle Ages, a monk called Eves of Chartres, and he encouraged all Christians everywhere to abstain from sex on Sundays in remembrance of Christ's resurrection, to abstain from sex on Mondays in respect for departed souls, to abstain from sex on Thursdays in remembrance of Christ's rapture, to abstain from sex on Fridays in remembrance of Christ's death, to abstain from sex on Saturday in honor of the Virgin Mary. That doesn't leave a lot of days, to be honest. And there's been loads, especially other monks and, 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 monks and, and uh, nunneries that have come up and that have all, and lots of Christian teachers that have left the impression that God is anti-sex. But I want to suggest that, that actually Eves of Chartres and all those monks and nuns are, have actually lost touch with their biblical heritage. Um, they've lost touch with what the Bible actually says because that's not actually what the Bible says at all. In fact, you will discover that God is for sex. It is a good gift that he's given. Um, God first doesn't create androgynous people. Uh, He creates us to be sexual beings, men and women. And we thought about that last week. That's essential to our identity. That's essential to who we are. Um, We are not uh, interchangeable. We are different. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Um, and we are made with sex drives to draw us together um, and to, to form uh, couples and meaningful relationships. Uh, if you ask a child, if you ask a child, uh, probably who's brought up in the church context, what is the first command given in the Bible? More often than not, the answer you'll get is, don't eat from the tree. A negative one. But actually, we've just read the first command given in the Bible. And it's Genesis 1.28. And it's a positive one. Go, have sex, and reproduce. Um, God is for sex. We see it here. And actually, if you start to look for that theme and you read through the rest of the Bible, you'll discover it in all sorts of places. Uh, You'll discover it again and again in the book of Proverbs, and perhaps most clearly uh, in the book of Song of Songs, where you have an unashamed celebration of physical sexual pleasure. God is for sex. But of course, if you start reading through the Bible, you'll also discover plenty of places where we're told some significant warnings about sex, to be careful about lust, and to not give in to our sexual desires. How are we meant to keep all these things together? Is God contradicting himself? Well, no, I guess uh, a helpful way to think about it, in my opinion, is to consider sex as being something similar to fire. Fire is a good thing and a wonderful gift from God. It gives us light and heat. It's a great thing. Um, But only if you put it in the right place, in a hearth, in a stove. If you take the same good gift, fire, and you put it in the wrong place, put it on the stairs, that'll lead to disaster and destruction and heartbreak. Uh, And in the same way, sex functions, I think, something similar. Sex is a good gift, but of course it can be abused and and cause disaster and great heartbreak if it's used in the wrong way. When sex is used casually, 
for selfish pleasure without any personal commitment, it can cause real damage. Secondly, that leads us to our second idea. God is for sex. Sex is for marriage. Sex is for marriage. God created sex, but also created the institution um, that sex would be, uh, would be, would flourish in. Uh, and that context is marriage. If you glance down to this passage, you'll see a strange detail in verses 20 and 21, uh, or sorry, yeah, 20 and 21. You'll see that God performs some weird surgery uh, on the guy. Um, now, whether we're meant to read this literally, that this is what literally what happened, or it's a metaphor, Christians disagree on that. Um, in one sense, I want to suggest right now that it doesn't really matter, because the point that has been made is that this woman is this, made of the same stuff as the man. She's made of the same stuff uh, as he is. Uh, God creates this woman And then there's this beautiful scene where God, as the father of the bride, presents her to her new husband. Uh, And he responds with the first love song in the world. Uh, It's there in verse 23. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman, for he was taken out, uh, she was taken out of man. When God provides a partner for this woman, he doesn't provide a mirror image. She is similar. So when he looks at her, he says, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. You're similar to me. I can relate to you. Unlike the parade of animals that I've just named, you're different. You're like me. But of course, she's also different. She's different. She shall be called woman. For she was taken out of man. She's different. There's a glorious similarity and a beautiful difference uh, in this partner that God has made for her. They fit together. They fit together. They're a bit like the opposite, opposite pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. She is different, but different in all the right ways. That they literally fit together both physically uh, and emotionally. What we see then in this little section is that this scene becomes then the pattern for all marriage in the future. And so Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 functions in many ways in the Bible as the definition of what marriage is. And so when Jesus discusses marriage, as we read in in Matthew 19, uh, and when uh, Paul discusses marriage in Ephesians 5 and and 1 Corinthians 7, they all quote this precise verse as the definition. This is a beautiful institution uh, that really allows romance and sex, uh, friendship, and love to flourish. But there's a lot of people who disagree with that, uh, especially today. Uh, there's a lot of folks who are, because of just the sheer vast number of broken marriages in our society, uh, there's lots, especially young people out there who are nervous about making such a commitment and it not working. 
uh, and others who just don't see the need for it at all. Um, and so, in a recent survey, uh, up to, it was only up to 50%, nearly 50% of those interviewed young people under the age of 25 said they had no intention of getting married. Happy just to live together with someone, happy to cohabit. But we dismiss marriage um, at, our, at our own peril because marriage is not just a convenient social contract. It's not something that human beings have just made up as a handy way for us to get together and organize our resources. Uh, it's not only a piece of paper. It is designed by God to be the environment in which romance and sex, self-sacrificial love and deep friendship can thrive. I want to say two things then in that context about how sex fits and what it's for in that context. I want to say something about the purpose of sex within marriage and then the picture of sex within marriage. First, the purpose of sex within marriage. There's two sides to the coin, really. And the first idea is that sex is given as a good gift from God for the purpose of uniting a couple together. The man will be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. Uh, We are the only mammals when when we have sex, we we look each other in the eye. There's something significant about that. Sex is for bringing us together in closer intimacy. It expresses our union and it strengthens our union and our bond together. And this is something that our hookup culture completely ignores uh, and gets horribly wrong, in my opinion. Uh, Because really the idea for today is that our culture views sex as a recreational act rather than a relational act. Uh, It's something merely we pursue for our own personal, physical pleasure rather than pursuing another person and engaging with another person. Uh, And the danger and the damage caused by that, there's a lot of hurting, broken people uh, that have been hurt because people have used and abused them in that way. And I think even there's hints that this is dawning even in our wider culture. People are beginning to see that. And so I came across this article uh, in, of all places, Cosmopolitan magazine. Now, I'm not a regular subscriber, I have to be honest. But back in, two- William's laughing. Back in 2005, uh, I came across this article where, which, which is really surprising because in Cosmopolitan magazine, they're famous. That magazine is famous for promoting a go-get-it-girl attitude to sex. And yet here's what one of the editors wrote back in 2005. There's been some misguided assumptions linked to the sexual revolution. And one is that sex can be both casual and happy. In human beings, sex is usually linked to an emotional bond. And without it, without that bond, it is at best unsatisfactory, but at worst humiliating and degrading. And I think that that editor is reflecting what is taught in Genesis 2 at that point. I think that's really profound. 
because I think we, we all, or we should all, recognize that our modern approach uh, to, to sexuality is actually violent. Because what it does is it rips apart, it rips apart your, your body and your soul. It's really saying, I, I want to be totally committed to you physically. I want total physical commitment from you. And yet I refuse whole life commitment to you. I don't want to be committed to you legally. I don't want to be committed to you socially. I don't want to be committed to you um, economically. I don't want to be committed to you even emotionally. And that is profoundly damaging. In fact, sex is designed not for selfish pleasure, but the act of making love within the safety and security of an exclusive marriage relationship is a beautiful expression of a couple's intimacy, vulnerability, passion, and permanence. What I want you to see is that God is wise and he's good. And his ways are actually beautiful and best. And that's what we see here. So what is sex for within marriage? It's designed to unite us, to bring us closer together. And of course it's also for, this may seem an obvious point, it's for procreating. Procreating, I've already read that. God commands the man and the woman to go and be fruitful, increase in number, have lots of babies. This is how you have babies. Uh, you get together in this way. And again, that, that might sound an obvious point, but in the last 50 years or so, what we've seen in our culture is a severing of that link between sex and procreation. It would not even be conceivable to have the, the sheer widespread addiction to pornography or the hookup culture that we're seeing if folks had foremost in their minds that babies could be made by this. I want to suggest that our culture is actually anti-sex, even though it has a lot of sex. It is actually anti-sex. It is trying to use it in a way that it's not designed to be used and causing, causing great damage. Whereas in God's wise and good purposes, if a couple who are married have sex, and it doesn't always happen for all sorts of reasons, but if they do have a baby, then that baby comes into then a context where there is love and loyalty, where there's affection and security. It's a safe place for children to be brought into and nurtured and developed. Again, we see God's ways are beautiful and best. Sex within marriage, we see first the the purpose of sex for uniting and procreating. But there's another aspect to sex within marriage, and that, um, secondly, is not just the purpose of sex, but the picture of sex. When Paul... uh, teaches about marriage in Ephesians 5. Um, He again quotes Genesis 2, uh, verse 24. I think we'll see the quote. Uh, He quotes Genesis 2, verse 24. And then he says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Now that's a pretty shocking statement to make. He's been talking about marriage between a man and a woman, and yet suddenly he just seems to completely change subject uh, and talk about Christ and the church. And the reason that he does that is because marriage is actually pointing to something beyond itself. It is pointing to the intimacy, love, permanent commitment that Christ has for his church. And I guess just to make this clear, 
Paul is not saying, oh, look, there's this relationship between Christ and his church, and oh, that relationship of marriage is a good illustration that I can use of that. It's exactly the other way around. It's the relationship between Christ and his church that comes first. And our marriage relationship is to be patterned on that. And that is why, as Christians, we insist on two things in marriage. Christians have always insisted on this. First is faithfulness, exclusive faithfulness. Why? Because only then can we point to the relationship of Christ and his church. Because he makes promises to his, his church and he is completely faithful. Completely faithful. Second, Christians have always insisted um, for this picture to work uh, and signposts to point in the right direction. Christians have always insisted, and this is very controversial, but Christians have always insisted that marriage is for a man and a woman. It's uh, only open to those of different sexes. Um, again, just to be, be clear, that is not because Christians are traditionalists and we don't like any change. It's not because we don't recognize that there's real love and commitment uh, between same-sex couples. We're not saying that. But the reason why Christians have always insisted that marriage is exclusively for a man, one man and one woman in a lifelong committed relationship is because only then can it point to Christ in the church. He is the same as us. He was incarnate as a human being, but he's also different, radically different from us because he is divine and we are not. Unity, indifference. Only then uh, can we properly reflect uh, the relationship that marriage was designed uh, to point to. And so our objection to same-sex marriage is not primarily ethical. It's primarily theological. I don't think that argument is going to carry any weight outside these walls, these doors. But nevertheless, that is why, as Christians, we've always insisted upon that. God is for sex. Sex is for marriage because of its purpose, because of its picture. Lastly, marriage is for life. Marriage is for life. Uh, we live in a culture where uh, broken marriages are everywhere we look. Um, there's been a huge rise in the number of divorces, a huge drop in the number of marriages. Uh, and it's sad that uh, one company in their advertising can say this. Statistically, people change their marriage partner before they change their Millie washing machine. And statistically, that's true. That's what's sad. Uh, and, of course, when the Bible is completely realistic, uh, the Bible recognizes we are all flawed, broken people. So when you bring two flawed, broken people together, there's going to be tension, there's going to be arguments, there's going to be, t- going to be tension and difficulty, uh, disagreement along the way. But God has designed marriage to be for life. And I think we see that point made really clearly in our second reading. If you want to turn over to Matthew chapter 19... Matthew chapter 19. Um, 
Jesus is being challenged, uh, forced to comment by the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees, uh, on the controversial topic of his day, divorce and remarriage. Uh, It's important you know where he is when he's doing that. He's in the region of Judea. And who is the the ruler in the region of Judea? Well, that's Herod Antipas, uh, a guy who's a divorcee. And when John the Baptist dared criticize him, had his head cut off for it. So they're trying to get Jesus in trouble with the local authorities and forcing him to comment on this issue. Verse 3, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And Jesus replies very wisely by saying, look, you've started in the wrong place. You've started this whole discussion by talking about divorce. What you need to do is start by talking about God's original intention for marriage. And so he quotes verses we've been looking at, Genesis 1, verses 20, verse 27, and then quotes Genesis 2, verse 24. And then Jesus provides this commentary. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. You see, marriage is more than just a human legal contract. God is involved in some mysterious way. Um, God is the one who welds two people together in marriage. Now, that means he's doing that whether or not they get married in a church. It means he's doing that whether or not they acknowledge God when they make their vows to each other. Either way, God is involved in uniting uh, two people together when they make their public vows to one another because God has designed marriage to be for life. The religious leaders then are shocked by Jesus' strong teaching on this, uh, and they actually respond by saying, yeah, but what about? But what about? And they refer to um, Moses in the law of Moses, uh, the provision that was made for divorce, verse 7. Why then, they asked, did Moses command a man, give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Surely that's divine permission for divorce, for any and every reason. But again, Jesus replies, verse 8, God didn't command you to get divorced. Uh, The Old Testament is not condoning divorce. It is not much less promoting divorce. Divorce is always something that breaks God's heart. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. Um... Because our hearts are hard, because we are sinful people, relationships, yes, break down because we're unfaithful. Uh, Divorce is sometimes, marriages sometimes are irretrievably broken. Trust is so shattered, the betrayal is so severe that divorce is inevitable. However, Jesus forbids easy divorce here. He forbids easy divorce and remarriage for any and every reason that they are uh, that they seem to support. But look, is there any then situation where divorce might be legitimate and as a result remarriage legitimate in God's eyes? Well, Jesus does give one exception in verse 9. Jesus says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. Back in Genesis 2, verse 24, there are two elements to the promises, the covenant that we make uh, as a married couple. We promise to leave our previous family, set up a new family unit 
and we promise to cleave to each other, to be faithful to each other. And therefore, Jesus seems to be saying, if someone then is unfaithful, one of the, one of the couple is unfaithful sexually and sleeps with someone else, then they have shattered the covenant. That covenant is broken. And the, the, the innocent, the innocent party, the one who's innocent of covenant-shattering sins, uh, is then free to seek divorce and would be free to remarry. Again, Jesus is not saying that that is the command. Um, You're not required to get divorced. If there's any possibility of forgiveness, rebuilding of trust and reconciliation, then that should be pursued. But sadly, uh, we live in a world where people are unfaithful. They, They break their covenant promises. Marriages are shattered. And in that case, divorce is legitimate and remarriage is possible. This is God's concession, but never, ever his intention. God is for sex. Sex is for marriage. Marriage is for life. As I finish, a word to the married, a word to the unmarried, a word to failures. First, a word to the unmarried, actually, first. If your ambition is to get married, then the Bible says that's a good ambition. That's a good ambition. It's a good gift. Uh, You should pray that God would send you someone um, and ask for the grace to help you if he hasn't already done that. Um, If you think you find that someone, if you think you find that someone, again, what we see here is don't be hasty. Don't Don't rush into anything. Marriage is for life. So think pray and get good advice from other people who know you both. Um, But again, unlike the traditional cultures of Jesus' day, uh, unlike the modern romantic culture of our day, the Bible also affirms singleness as a fulfilling, meaningful way to live our lives, fruitful way to live our lives. In fact, Jesus was single and lived the most Meaningful, the most significant life. Paul, single, made the most impact in the history of the world and had the most meaningful relationships. The Bible also holds up um, singleness uh, as something good and right. Uh, and in fact, as I heard um, someone put it, um, if you're single and you want to get married, you're simply exchanging one set of difficulties for another set of difficulties. I think that's quite realistic. That's true. That's all you're doing. Um, A word to the unmarried. Secondly, a word to the married. Um, If we want to keep our marriages strong and healthy, then what we see here is we need to invest in them. We need to invest in them. We need not to take our marriages for granted. We need to give the time over Uh, to expressing our love practically, physically, uh, and with the words that we use. Uh, This doesn't come naturally. If we're having problems, don't ignore it. Don't ignore it. Talk about these things. And if you think it would help to bring someone else, involve someone else that you both trust, then, then do so. Because marriage can be, should be, is something beautiful, but it doesn't come naturally. And we often need to work at that. And of course, we should pray to God, ask him to help us. If he's the one who really brought you together, 
uh, if he's the one who has given you his Holy Spirit that will enable you to forgive and to, uh, and to serve and to love each other, then you should be praying and ideally praying together. Lastly, a word to failures. A word to failures. We are all failures in this area. All of us. Whether it is just mentally, uh, in terms of our imagination, if it's virtually, in the things that we've clicked on, if it's physically, we are all failures in some way. And Paul is really clear in the New Testament that we should flee from sexual immorality. It is dangerous and corrosive, not just for us, but for our family and for the whole community that we live in. It's really damaging and really dangerous. And so if, even if I'm talking as you think the Holy Spirit might be touching something in your life, troubling your conscience in some way, tonight's the night to do something about it. To go to him and say you're sorry and then be sorry enough to change, to turn away from that. Because this is really dangerous. But for those of us who have, all, have failed, there is wonderful hope in the gospel. just want to read this last verse uh, as we close. And that is what some of you were. He's just given a big list of those who are sexually immoral. He's given this big list in 1 Corinthians 6. But, it's wonderful, but, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We've all failed, but there's wonderful hope for each and every one of us because the Lord Jesus died on the cross. He took the penalty for all our shame and guilt in this area as well as every other. Um, And our sin, if we go to him and ask for his forgiveness, will never be counted against us again. Um, We are made, as Paul uses the, the picture here, we are made clean. We are washed clean, made acceptable uh, before God. He has given us his spirit right now with the power to change us. Uh, and he has brought us into a relationship where although we are unfaithful, although we are unfaithful, he is always faithful. And his faithfulness will never change. And we've been brought into a perfect marriage that not even death will end. Let me pray for us as we close.